Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. On immigration policy, is rhetoric the only difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Let's get to the bottom line. For a nation of immigrants, it's a bit ironic that nothing divides America more than immigration. The political debate on whether to allow more immigrants into the country, especially from Latin America, can help a party win or lose an election. Former President Donald Trump used the general anger of American workers to attack immigrants and demand that a wall be built between the United States and Mexico, paid for by Mexico. That didn't go very far, but it helped him win in 2016. Last year, candidate Joe Biden ran on a more immigrant-friendly platform, which helped him win in 2020, but after a surge of people wanting to cross the southern border this year, we saw the same problems. Thousands of children arriving without their parents, locked up in camps, and about 100,000 arrests at the border in February and now almost 200,000 in March. The Biden administration says it wants total reform of immigration policy, but what does that mean? And can it achieve that in a country that's so deeply divided on these issues? To find out, we're talking to Lorella Praeli, whose family came to the United States from Peru when she was just a child and lived as an undocumented immigrant for years and years. Now she's fighting for immigrants as co-president of Community Change, a national organization working for social justice. And Professor Francisco Gonzalez, who teaches about the politics and economics of Latin America at the Johns Hopkins University here in Washington, D.C. Thank you both for joining us today. Let me start with you, Lorella. You know, as we've been watching things unfold at the border, but also watching the politics of the immigration debate play out in Washington, D.C., I'm interested in what you would like to see in terms of rhetoric from President Biden becoming real action on reforming immigration. What would be the key pieces that would help you have confidence that this administration is going to be different than those that have come before it? Such a good question, Steve, because... I think rhetoric is just the beginning of really shifting and shifting a story and telling the story about who we are and what we stand for as a country and what are the kind of policies that we're going to advance. But here, the Biden administration really has an opportunity to deliver. They have looked at Latino voters and immigrant voters, them being Democrats, for decades and promised to deliver on a path to citizenship for 11 million. What we are looking for and what would be a definitional moment for this administration and define early success and commitment on immigration would be for the administration and for congressional Democrats to legalize millions of people, starting with the Dream and Promise Act, as well as the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, and to also, in this critical moment, take up legalization for essential workers. So that'd be really the shift here and the measure of success in the coming months for this administration. So that would be a more pragmatic track. Dr. Gonzalez, I would like to ask you the same thing. Would you think, you know, as you look at, you know, some of the things that are driving, you know, the surge at the border, but to look at how, you know, as Lorella just said, how do you make a pragmatic first step? Is it dreamers? Is it farm workers? Is it essential workers? Do you see that as the way forward that might, um, um, I guess, make the politics of this less toxic? Thank you, Steve. The, I think one of the key things for me watching it in Washington, D.C., I've been based here 16 years, and I've seen uh, what a political football uh, immigration policy is. Um, in the run-up to elections, both camps, Republicans and Democrats, uh, will kick off that ball to energize the basis. It is and will remain a very contentious issue. 
the thing that very clearly has struck the hearts and minds of many people is how many among the undocumented communities became essential workers during the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. So Latinos, Hispanos, undocumented Hispanos, are overrepresented in terms of services regarding basic cleaning mm. uh, in, in hospitals, in healthcare areas. Uh, they are, we are, um, essential in uh, farming, in transportation, transportation of basic goods and services. That narrative, I believe, uh, continues to be um, known by people who follow policy, people who follow politics. I believe that it would be very important to remind people that even President Trump, who clearly did not like people like me, Mexicanos, in fact, ended up in 2020 having to say that there were many people among the Hispanic community who had become essential service workers. And without them, the country would have not been mm. able to just continue operating in basic things like food, food production, food delivery, healthcare work. Imagine doing all the work that, uh, you know, regarding cleaning up. Mm. And cleaning up is done by Hispanics. That is something that the American public should know. It, it, it's not necessarily, you know, as heroic as having fought in the Second World War and mm. beaten the Germans and Japan. But this is something that would, I hope, help to change the profile, the perception about Hispanics as, particularly recent-come Hispanics, as people who are really contributing existentially mm. to the well-being of the United States. Thank you. I just, I yeah, go ahead, Lorena, please, please. Quickly, because, because the question that you're asking is, what needs to happen to change the politics? And I actually I have to reject that a little bit or amend it, because I think that the politics are overwhelmingly in support of action and path to citizenship for millions of immigrants in this country. That has been consistently true for a decade at this point. It really is a matter of political will and political courage. And here I would say that particularly as it relates to the situation at the border, too many reporters and media pundits in particular have uncritically accepted right-wing frames and Republican talking points on migration at our southern border. It's a disservice to the public. <clears throat> and at the end of the day, the cost is really human lives. Right. So my top-line message for Biden and Democrats is that they ran against the most anti-immigrant candidate of our lifetimes. And candidate Biden has the most progressive immigration platform in the history of presidential politics. He is now the president. He won. And not only that the politics of immigration actually win, but the kind of organizing on the ground led by immigrant communities help to deliver the selection. Well, let so me... Democrats to act like they won, yeah. not concede to the side that lost. Well, let, let me let me ask you a question, Loretta. I mean, I think you make a great point that I was, you know, at a U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce meeting in 2016. Jeb Bush from that podium, who was running for uh, then the Republican uh, slot uh, for president, um, said, I am a dreamer. I am a dreamer. He aligned himself with dreamers. Julian Castro on the Democratic side was there. I heard John McCain in the past. Senator John McCain expressed that support. I've heard many Republicans talk about, just as you did, 
uh, dreamers, farm workers, essential workers. Um, I've also seen uh, something that was just released in the Washington Post, an interesting surge of Latina women's support for the Trump ticket when he was running. So there seems to be a blurriness out there. I mean, I love the clarity you bring to it, but I'm just sort of interested in the fact that there is a bipartisan, uh, you know, uh, groundswell of, of support at some level for this. And, and so I'm just wondering, what has happened to that dimension? Uh, and, and, and do you think that we have the right circumstances now to see real steps forward by the Biden team in partnership with some of these Republicans that have previously expressed support for uh, a path to citizenship for dreamers and so on? I do, and we're going to give it a go. It's really a question Republicans in Congress are going to have to answer. Uh, now, what's happened in the Republican Party, I think, is that being anti-immigrant is now part of how they win elections. And so you've lost senators like John McCain and Jeff Flake, who used to really drive this agenda for the Republican Party. Marco Rubio has totally changed his position on immigration and is inconsistent today with where he was in 2013 when we last went through a comprehensive round for immigration reform in the Senate. And so I think that the opportunity lies here. But let me be clear about one thing, which is that Democrats have a number of other tools at their disposal if Republicans do not want to engage in bipartisan negotiation and conversation and real engagement to get this done. Mm that Democrats are not off the hook this year. They can no longer go into 2022 uh, next year and, uh, and tell voters that they promised and they're going to promise again and then they're going to deliver in the next term. It is no longer a credible argument. So sure, let's try for bipartisanship. Let's try mm -hmm. to work on something with Republicans in the next couple of months. And if we can't get to an agreement with the other side, then it is incumbent on, it is critical for Democrats to use every tool at their disposal. One of the tools that they have is the budget reconciliation process mm. to try to legalize as many people as possible. I'm interested in, you know, the other dimension of this story, which is what's driving that, that surge of, 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 of border traffic, of refugees, of those seeking asylum, of those wanting to migrate to the U.S., and the Biden administration, Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor and others, have talked very directly about our need to invest in Central America and help try to stabilize those populations. So tell us, tell us where that is going on and how that's a part of this conversation. There have been many surveys, uh, Steve. Uh, there's a, a very salient one called uh, Saliendo Adelante, uh, making, it, making it through uh, resilience. Um, and these have been polling exercises uh, in which upwards of 10, 15,000 people across uh, the three uh, main countries uh, of emigration, Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras, have been carried out. The topics that people report tend to be, you know, can be concentrated, aggregated into three or four main issues. Some of them are strictly related to uh, underdevelopment, what we would see in sub-Saharan Africa, what we'd see in parts of South Asia, Southeast Asia, um, big families, mm. very scarce resources, um, high rates of 
teenage pregnancy, um, moms that really have to re find a, a way forward for their youngsters without uh, any support. Others uh, have to do with, uh, you know, the idea of starting again. Uh, a lot of people trying to leave Central America because they and or people they know, um, people from the nuclear family mm. or extended family, are part and parcel of what since the 1990s uh, became a, a really lawlessness, very mm. high rates uh, of gang activity, right. of crime and violence, of human trafficking, uh, extortion, uh, you name it. More recently, uh, experts have been uh, putting more emphasis, and this is borne out mm. by these surveys, people, particularly people from the countryside, campesinos, peasants, indigenous campesinos, cite lower yields, higher frequency extreme weather events as erasing their livelihoods. Mm. So a majority of the migrants are really against the wall for a variety of reasons. And the, the thing that connects them with the United States is that a majority of them either have a family member, right. people from you know, wide networks who, with, with whom there is a connection and where as you move along, mm -hmm. and I've seen it with, with, with countless families, right. people obviously start comparing. How is my cousin in Michigan or in North Carolina in Maryland doing compared to the cousins back here right. in Quetzaltenango or in San Pedro Sula. Yeah. And as you can imagine, the difference is incredible. So people obviously are willing to risk their lives for themselves and the future generations. And you cannot blame them for that. Lorella, you know, as you sort of look at the politics of this moment changing that, you know, and as I said, I, I know that there are different tracks, but it seems to be difficult to proceed uh, even with the bits of legislation that are being broken down in which you may find, you know, uh, enough support on dreamers, et cetera, et cetera. But that border story is still important. What Vice President Kamala Harris has been assigned to do is important. How do you think that fits into the story from your perspective? Yeah, um, I don't think it's that the politics are hard. I keep going back to it really is a matter of uh, focus and it is a matter of delivery. And so on the border, it's important to say first and foremost, the border is secure. Hmm. That cyclical increases in migration, specifically of families and children, have become the norm for decades because too many politicians have been more interested in playing politics to score points on border security right. than actually addressing the underlying conditions contributing to it. So you know, the Biden administration was really step up to meet this moment, swiftly really expand the capacity to process families and children arriving at the border. What Americans want is an orderly and fair and functional system. That is going to take time, but it is entirely possible. And I think we're moving, I would say, along three key realms to get this done. One is people are, people must, people who are legally trying to come to the U.S., for humanitarian relief or in search of a better life should be able to apply closer to their home countries as opposed to um, just at the border through the asylum system. Mm. Two is that the administration needs to provide aid to the Northern Triangle 
And that'll help improve conditions in that region. It'll reduce the factors driving people away from their homes to begin with. And the third here is that the U.S. has a role in leveraging its regional partnerships to expand refugee protections and overall resettlement across the hemisphere. Um, and that'll also improve conditions for people migrating. So there is no fast way. There is no quick, um, quick track to get this done. The, especially coming out of the Trump years when they really decimated and really um, destroyed our mm -hmm. asylum system. So that has to move on its track, and that work is going to be ongoing. We've seen Vice President Harris say she's going to lead those talks in Central America with our partners in that region. And then the U.S. Congress and President Biden need to deliver that the longer that you keep this ish these issues alive right. and unresolved, the longer you're not really delivering on your commitments and your promise to legalize people, to deliver on a path to citizenship, and to take right. people out of this limbo status they've been in for decades. Lorette, Lorette before you go, and I know you have to leave it early and we can consist you with Francisco Gonzalez, but I want to ask you just one quick question. You know, in your experience with community change and the role that you play out there, these kind of battles are either one where one side is trying to vanquish the other or you're trying to find commentary and bring faith. I'm interested in whether your messaging, how you've approached this issue of immigration, thinking about what the legislative track, have you found Republican allies uh, either behind the scenes or overtly, uh, uh, you know, above the scenes that are willing to come along with you? Right now or in past struggles? Well, in any time, what would be models of seducing the other side to, uh, to, to move along with what you see as a more sensible immigration policy? Yeah, I mean, in general, um, I think that when you lean into the stories, when you lean into the people that we're talking about, the conversation changes because you're talking about real people. I grew up as an undocumented person in this country. My sister is a DACA recipient now. And so it's not a... I don't talk about the 600,000 young people who have DACA. I, I think about my sister and what it means for her every day to live with that kind of uncertainty. And I know that our Congress can deliver in this moment. And really, it is a question for Republicans. Is this all rhetoric? Is it just key to their political relevance and, uh, and existence? Or are they willing to deal? Are mm. they willing to say, well, we recognize that we have a role to govern here. That is why we come to Washington, D.C. That's why America sends us here. Um, or right. will they continue to deflect, you know, make some uh, show trips to the border? Um, or will they actually do their job? And I am not holding my breath, but I am working with a coalition that is engaging Republicans, Senate moderate Democrats, and the rest of the Democratic caucus to get this done this year. We're going to continue our conversation with Professor Gonzalez, but we know you have to go now, Lorella, so thanks for being with us. Lorella Praeli, co-president of Community Change, thanks for your thoughts. Professor Gonzalez, um, I'd love to get back for a moment to the root causes uh, and, and how, what the precedent is uh, for the United States. My good friend Arturo Valenzuela, who used to be Assistant Secretary for Latin America, used to tell me, he said, we try hard to get earnest, direct, sensible U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America. But when you compare that to looking at China, Russia, Europe, Asia, um, Latin America always comes out to be the sort of um, orphan in those subjects, the one dealt with last. And so I guess my question is, given the legacy of American foreign policy in the region, 
uh, that has not put Latin America first and foremost, you know, and you've talked about root causes a bit. How do we have to square that and bring that around, given the fact that we've never really been that good at Latin American foreign policy? Very good uh, point, Steve. Um, in foreign policy circles, uh, among scholars of international relations, international politics, one of uh, the, uh, the sayings is, uh, you know, Latin America is traditionally perceived as, as the backyard of the United States. Mm. That, that's not the only reason why the U.S. You know, considers it uh, you know, secondary uh, importance. The key issue is we don't have nukes. Mm. So if any of the countries in the region had nukes, our status uh, in uh, policymaking circles in Washington would, would go up. <clears throat> I, I don't know if I would subscribe to then, uh, you know, counseling any leaders in Latin America to start developing nukes. But your point is well taken. Uh, Latin America is and has been an area uh, where the U.S. tends to uh, enact policies in a reactive way. Mm. It, it tends to react to developments in the region. And this is a region which, to start with, is characterized by incredible socioeconomic uh, inequality. The case of Central America in particular is very telling. Here we have some of the most unequal societies uh, in the hemisphere, uh, Steve. And the U.S. is uh, part and parcel of the problem, because since the latter part of the 19th century, whoever was in power, progressives, Republicans, Democrats, all of the time, U.S. policy was geared to support and keep in place mm. the very small economic political elites. These are oligarchic societies. That means ruled by a handful of families. And this handful, this handful have managed to reproduce themselves in time and continue to be, in Salvador they say mm. it's 14, in Honduras they say it's seven or eight. There's no real number. We know it's very few. One of the key things is that U.S. policy kept them in power through their uh, collaboration with U.S. business interests, the interests regarding the banana trade, the coffee trade, big plantation agriculture. So this is, this is a problem which has very deep roots, is structural. And you're not going to see these uh, oligarchies, these few families, uh, uh, you know, in, in an enlightened manner, giving up power or wanting to share power. They're not going to do that. Um, they continue to be among the most reactionary in Latin America. They're not the only ones, but Central American and some among the, the Caribbean, the poorest countries, are among uh, the worst. So I, 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 I wish I could say this is about engagement, and if the U.S. puts together a program of 10 or 15 billion dollars, we can start addressing mm. root causes. I wish I could say that's good and that's potentially ne necessary and sufficient. It's necessary, it's nowhere sufficient, because what you have is much right. more often than not great leakage. Mm -hmm. Leakage meaning whatever foreign aid comes in, whatever investment comes in, is going to be monopolized by this very thin crust right. of elite families. Right. You don't have states with strong redistributive capacity. Right. You don't have infrastructure,
public goods right. that can allow people to connect with one another, to find jobs, uh, to try to better themselves through education. All of that right. is very, very, uh, very weak. Yes. The U.S. cannot just ju ju just put it uh, you know, out right. there and create it. On that sober note, Francisco Gonzalez, Associate Professor of Latin American Politics at the Johns Hopkins University, thanks so much for being with us today. Pleasure, Steve. So what's the bottom line? For years, Americans heard from Donald Trump and politicians like him that immigrants are a threat. They're taking your jobs. They're criminals, he said. And now guess what? That's what many of them believe. The question is, will Biden do what he said he would do, giving millions of undocumented immigrants who've lived here since they were kids a real path to citizenship? And figuring out a way to allow more folks, whether seeking asylum or refugees or workers, students or tourists, into America. And can he do that when he faces opposition not only from the Republican Party, but members of his own Democratic Party? The Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. If the United States is to restore its global leadership, Biden's going to have to find a way to win this one. And that's the bottom line.